Welcome to the Murder Lab podcast. I am your hostess, Victoria, Queen Victoria. This is the podcast where I don't discuss just one serial killer. I discuss all serial killers and what they have in common. Today, I will be talking about serial killers that had murder labs. Now, specifically, this is people who had either one room or their whole house or several rooms dedicated to the torture and murder of people. So that is an important distinction. This will probably become a two or three parter because there are several of them. Today we will focus on H.H. Holmes and Rosemary and Fred West. Henry Howard Holmes, best known as H.H. Holmes, is the creator of the Ultimate Murder Lab. He was also heavily involved in fraud, but right now I'll focus on his main span of murder from 1886 to 1893. During this period, there are five verified murders, but the number could be up to 100. Some people put it over 200, but that's not been proven. In 1886, he was 25 years old, and he had just moved to the Englewood suburb of Chicago. Now, keep in mind, this is a time when Chicago was growing, and Englewood was one of the fastest-growing suburbs. As industry increased, especially meatpacking, the population grew. Apartments and boarding houses were in demand, and crime was at an all-time high. Women were gaining, gaining more freedom and venturing to the city unaccompanied. This was also the same time period that Jack the Ripper was wreaking havoc in England. Interesting side note, H.H. H. Holmes's real name was Herman Webster Mudgett. Well, that's not particularly interesting. His great-great-great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, claims that Holmes was Jack the Ripper. There's even a special on Hulu called The American Ripper about his claims. He also wrote a book. I didn't read the book, but I watched the show and was not convinced. They made a lot of jumps in logic, and while it was a fun idea, I don't think he proved his claim. I will start with some background on Holmes, pertinent to this part of his story. As a child, he was bullied, and the bullies found out that he was terrified of skeletons. They forced him into a local doctor's office that had an articulated human skeleton in it and forced him into its bony arms. Something interesting happened, though. Instead of running in terror, it removed his fear. Holmes himself said, it was a wicked and dangerous thing to do to a child of tender years and health, but it proved a heroic method of treatment, destined ultimately to cure me of my fears and to inculcate in me, first, a strong feeling of curiosity, and later, a desire to learn, which resulted years afterwards in my adopting medicine as a profession. Indeed, skeletons would prove to become an important part of his life, as we shall see in a bit. He wound up marrying Clara Loverling, Lovering, who paid for him to go to medical school. He went to the University of Vermont and then the University of Michigan, which was one of the leading scientific medical schools. He graduated with mediocre grades and abandoned his wife, not bothering to get a divorce. In 1886, he came to Chicago and found a pharmacy owned by an older couple. Now, the husband was dying of cancer and his elderly life was trying to run the business by herself, so when Holmes said he was a doctor and licensed pharmacist, it seemed like a perfect arrangement. 
When the husband died, Holmes took over ownership and allowed the widow to keep living there. The E.S. Holton Pharmacy became the H.H. Holmes Pharmacy, and Mrs. Holton disappeared soon after. Holmes had a different story for anyone who asked where she went. In 1887, he married Myrta Z. Belknap and had a daughter named Lucy. They wound up leaving Holmes to go live with her parents. This didn't faze him. He had bigger plans to tend to. In 19... Sorry, 1888, he purchased the lot at the intersection of Wallace and 63rd Street, right across from the pharmacy that he currently owned. He wanted one floor to have businesses, including his pharmacy, and for the building to include apartments. What he didn't tell anyone was that he also wanted a murder lab. Quick side note before we get into the gruesome details. He sold his shop to someone and assured them they'd have plenty of business. But then he opened his own pharmacy across the street in his new building. What a dick move, H.H. Holmes. Dick move. As the building was being constructed, he would only let the workers see part of the plan. That way they wouldn't know the grisly details. He would also make up reasons to fire them so no one stayed long enough to figure anything out. About 500 craftsmen and common laborers came and went. They'd work for a week or two, and then Holmes would fire them, saying the work was subpar and he wouldn't pay them. So he kept his secrets and his money. As Gollum would say, he was tricksy. Now here's a perfect example of Holmes getting one over on people during the construction process. He bought on credit an enormous safe as large as a walk-in bank vault. To ensure he wouldn't have to pay his creditors, he constructed a room around it with a door too small for it to fit through. Then, when they came to collect their money, he refused and invited them to try to take it, but if there was any damage to his building, he'd sue them. He won, and they retreated. You'll hear more about the vault in a bit. Now, the height of the building was not impressive. Other buildings were 10 to 12 stories tall, but his was only three. However, in square feet, it was impressive. The lot was 50 feet by 162 feet, which took up a good portion of the block. He did alter his plans some once they announced that the World's Fair would be taking place in Chicago. He decided to modify it to also be a hotel. This wound up being a savvy decision since 27 million people visited the city during the six months of the fair. Which meant people could disappear without a trace... And there was lots of crime in general, so he would be less noticed. In some sources, construction began in 1888 and lasted until 1890. Other sources say it took three years, from 1891 to 1893. It seems as though construction on the first two floors were done by 1891, and then the third floor was added to accommodate the World's Fair and was completed by 1893. At any rate, everyone seems to agree that it was available in 1893. The first floor was comprised of shops. There was a space for five retail stores, which included Holmes Pharmacy, a sign painter, and a used magazine vendor. The second floor and third floor had rooms, and most were like regular hotels. The third floor also had Holmes's office and personal chambers. The second floor was like a maze. 51 doors lined six corridors, zigzagged at crazy angles. Behind the doors were 35 rooms, some ordinary. Others were lined with asbestos-covered steel plates to make them soundproof. 
Some were so narrow, with such low ceilings, they were basically closer to a closet than a proper room. Most were rigged with gas pipes, controlled by homes on the third floor. Those rooms could only be locked from the outside and had peepholes so he could watch them. The second floor also had secret passageways, concealed closets accessible through sliding panels, trap doors opening up into darkness, and large greased shafts to the cellar. These chutes were used to slip a body into, and it would slide to the cellar for easier disposal. The rooms on the third floor were strung along a network of narrow, weirdly angled hallways. Dim-lit gas jets lined the walls in wide intervals. There were strange turns, dead ends, stairways to nowhere, and locked doors with homes having the only key. His personal chambers and office were also on the third floor. In his office was an immense iron stove, eight feet tall and three feet circumference. Adjacent to his office was a locked room with the aforementioned bank vault, and a gas pipe had been added to it. The gas was controlled in either his bedroom or his office. I saw both referenced in my research. But the important thing is that this was in an area only he had access to. From this panel, he could fill any second or third floor rooms with gas, and the sleeping occupants wouldn't hear it. Sometimes instead of gas, though, he would use chloroform. He'd unlock the door and cover the sleeper with a rag covered in chloroform. No matter the method, once murdered, he could dump the bodies down the chutes. Once at the bottom of the chute, there were a few options available to Holmes. One of these nefarious options was a kiln. He claimed that he was going to start a glass-blowing venture, and he had a mechanic come out to adjust the kiln's temperature once it was built. It was modified so it would reach 3,000 degrees. What was particularly interesting was the kiln's size, three feet high, three feet wide, and eight feet long. It could fit a person, but not a very large sheet of glass. It was further described as a large rectangular box of fireproof brick encased within a second box of the same material with the space between them heated by flames from an oil burner. The inner box would serve as, as an elongated kiln. And because of the high temperature it could reach, there would be no odor from whatever was burned inside. There were cast iron doors and a grate that slid in and out on rollers. Naturally, he kept any profitable items from his victims and put the rest in the kiln to be destroyed. If that didn't suit him, he also had a large zinc tank or assorted vats to store corrosives like acid and quicklime. Some victims would become articulated skeletons like the one that set him on his path as a child. He met a man skilled in mounting human skeletons, and the man knew Holmes was a doctor with a pharmacy, so when Holmes had cadavers for him to turn into skeletons, he didn't think anything of it. He did the work, got paid, and then Holmes would sell it to the medical college, and they both made money. The basement had more asbestos-covered sheets of iron plates to line the rooms as soundproofing. He also had a dissecting table and a surgeon cabinet full of medical instruments. <laughs> Naturally, he had a medieval torture rack, though Holmes would claim this was his elasticity determinator, and he was going to create a race of giants by stretching people out. I would have loved to see the faces people made when he told them that. Even better, to see how he convinced them it was a thing. He was apparently extremely adept at hornswoggling people. 
race of giants. Quick side note, one visitor noticed the shoddy workmanship and the cheap lumber used, but I guess that's what you get when you don't let people see the plans and you hire and fire your builders all the time. All right, now let's go over the victims of Holmes Castle. He started an affair with a married woman, Julia Connor, whose husband worked for him, and she became pregnant with Holmes's baby. This was inconvenient to him, so her and her daughter, Pearl, disappeared in 1891, while she was pregnant with his child. The next year, he became engaged to Emmeline Sigrand, but she disappeared too. He claimed she married another man. He even sent out invitations and everything. Then, in 1893, he got engaged to Minnie Williams. She had happened to inherit a large estate, including some land in Texas. Minnie's sister Anna, also known as Nanny, started to become a problem, so she became a victim of his bank vault. Soon, Minnie was to disappear as well. Of course, he managed to receive her inheritance. When people began to show up for the World's Fair... Even though he had plenty of space, he would turn away men. Somehow, he magically had room for the women, who were unused to the city and were by themselves. Plenty of room for them. Workers began disappearing, such as a waitress from the hotel's restaurant and one of his stenographers. There was also an ebb and flow of chemical odors in the hotel. So when creditors became too insistent, he realized he needed to leave. So he tried to burn it down for insurance. He had an accomplice start a fire on the third floor. The third floor was demolished, with some damage to the second floor, but most of the second and ground floors were fine. He ran away. In 1984, he married Georgiana Yoke, who became his third wife. Keep in mind, he never divorced his first wife, so technically his second and third marriages were not legal. But, you know, nobody knew, so I guess it didn't hurt anybody. Then in 1895, he was caught for insurance fraud, so the cops decided they should check out his castle. No one had any idea of the immensity that faced them. This is how all of the crazy rooms were revealed, along with the discovery of the chutes, torture devices, gas chambers, and everything else. They found the bones of a child, and although Holmes denied it, it was probably Julia Connor's child, Pearl. A bloody hangman's noose was discovered in a locked storage chamber. If it was attached to the upstairs wall of the secret dumbwaiter shaft, a body hanging from the noose would just clear the floor at the bottom of the shaft. It seems as though the victim would be pushed through the upstairs door and strangled to death. They found sections of a human skull, hip socket, shoulder blades, several pieces of a collarbone, some vertebrae, a foot bone, and blood-clotted clothing. A vat of acid contained ribs and part of a skull. More articles of clothing came from pits of ash and quicklime. Human hair clotted a stovepipe. Inside the iron stove at his office, the police located buttons and a lady's gold watch chain. In his walk-in vault, they found a woman's footprint, as if she placed her foot against the door to try to get free. So in his book, Depraved, Harold Schechter believes that it was Nanny's footprint. Because he did shut her in the vault and suffocate her. But in The Devil in the White City, 
Eric Larson surmises that the footprint was actually Emmeline Sagrand's. She was instructed to go in the vault to get a paper or something and was locked in there by Holmes. Don't know whose it is. But no matter what, its presence is still disturbing. When the story was revealed, one Chicago journalist dubbed Holmes a multi-murderer. Keep in mind that at this time, serial killers weren't really a thing. So Jack the Ripper comes out, and then they discover H.H. Holmes. So this is like a whole other level of murder that they hadn't classified at all. Now, at first, he denied everything, and eventually he did confess to killing a bunch of people. But some of them wound up still being alive, so it's hard to know how deep the truth went. They could prove at least nine, but most likely he killed more. The nine includes some that happens after he left the castle— and I'll discuss that in a future episode. I see you shiver with anticipation. From his confessions, these seem to be closest to the truth, though since names weren't always given and bodies not found, he was not charged with some of these. One tenant was behind in rent. They fought. He hit him with a heavy chair, and the tenant died and became a medical skeleton. Julia Connor and her daughter Pearl. He said he po- poisoned Pearl. Charles Cole a southern speculator he lured to Chicago to the castle, and his accomplice bludgeoned him. Lizzie, worked in the castle restaurant, was suffocated in the vault because he was afraid his accomplice would run off with her. A woman and her niece caught him with a body, so he killed them in the vault. He said she was with child. Emmeline Sagrand, he suffocated in the vault. He says he poisoned Rosine Van Jossend and buried her in the basement. And his employee, Robert Latimer, found out about some insurance fraud and tried to blackmail him. He pulled some Edgar Allan Poe shit on him and put him in a secret room, intending to starve him to death. Then he wound up killing him because he needed the room for something. You know, the difficulties of being a murderer. Now, what were his motivations? I would say greed, convenience, and fun are the big ones. With the murder of Minnie, he gained her inheritance. When women became pregnant and threatened his plans, he killed because it was convenient. If that tenant withheld money and Holmes killed him as they fought, like he said, that falls under greed and convenience with a bit of temper thrown in as well. And the murder castle itself is a testament that he really just enjoyed it. He had fun messing with people, manipulating their minds and bodies and stealing their possessions and life from them. Schechter surmises Holmes masturbated while Emmeline suffocated in the vault and that he derived sexual pleasure from watching people suffocate. I would not be surprised if this was the case. I mean, he had peepholes to watch them die. Peepholes, like glory holes, go hand in hand with horniness. So what happened to the castle? After the discovery of the horrors inside, someone intended it to become a murder museum with an admission charge of 15 cents per person, complete with guided tours. It only took them two weeks to get get it newly remodeled as a tourist attraction. However, it caught fire, and the building was rendered unusable. The remains were torn down in 1938, and a post office now resides there. Some nicknames given to the building were Bluebeard's Castle, Murder Castle, Nightmare Castle, The Castle of Horror, 
Torture Castle, Chamber of Horrors, and the Holmes Horror Castle. What happened to H.H. Holmes? He was hanged. Some nicknames given to Holmes was Holmes the Archfiend, the Torture Doctor, and the Chicago Bluebeard. Quick side note, um, you'll notice Bluebeard was mentioned a couple of times. Um, it was in, because there was this tale of this dude named Bluebeard that killed his wives. So, that's that. So, that was H.H. Holmes and his murder castle. We'll definitely be talking more about him in the future and his fraud and some of the other things, his accomplices and, and whatnot. The main book references for this part of the episode was Devil in the White City by Eric Larson and Depraved by Harold Schechter. For a more complete list of other references that I used, go to murderlabmedia.com. There's a whole list right there for you. Get ready, because I'm about to talk about Fred and Rosemary West. The bulk of the killing took place between 1971 and 1987 in Gloucestershire, England. All right, so give you a general idea of the time period. It was when women were experiencing more freedom, plus there was an economic crisis which led to rebellious lifestyles like punk culture and communes. So it was a time when swinging and having a more liberal lifestyle wasn't unheard of. It may not have been the norm for the whole neighborhood, but it necessarily wouldn't have been scandalous. The number of verified deaths during that time period is nine, though the total count of their murders through their lives could be closer to 13. Fred claimed that he killed over 20 people, and they'd never be found, and indeed, none of those bodies were found. So it could be true, it could be bullshit. During this span of murder, Fred would have been 30 when it started and 46 when it ended, and Rose would have been 18 when it started and ended at 34 years old. However, they were not arrested until 1994, when Fred was 53 and Rose was 41. The site of most of the murders and the house that I will be focused on was at 25 Cromwell Street. Before I delve into the Cromwell Street slangs, I do want to mention a few important background details. Fred said his dad had sex with Fred's sisters and that his dad taught him about bestiality. He claimed his dad said the best way to have sex with a goat was to put the back legs down the front of his boots. So, there you go. Fred also claimed that his mom started having sex with him when he was 12. There's some speculation as to whether that's true or not. But, given the testimonies of his kids and the way he behaved with them, I'm inclined to believe there's some truth to that, which I'll get into later. Another important detail is that in 1962, he married Catherine Costello, known as Rena. She had a child by someone else, and that child was Charmaine. Fred and Rena had a daughter together named Anne Marie in 1964. Then, in 1967, he hooked up with Rena's friend, Anna McFall, who became pregnant with his child and insisted he divorce Rena and marry her. Soap opera shit, indeed. His response? He killed her. He kind of pulled the uh, page from a H.H. Holmes book, I guess. The next year, in 1968, he met Rose. Rose had been molested by her father... So if Fred was also a victim of abuse, it certainly formed an extra bond between them. When she met Fred, she was 15, and he was 28. 
Her being 13 years younger than him was apparently no deterrent as she wound up pregnant by him the next year. Keep in mind, he's still married to Rena at the time. But eventually, Rena went away and left Charmaine and Anne-Marie with Fred and Rose. Fred and Rose had a daughter together in 1970 named Heather. Fred began to sexually abuse Charmaine. He wound up in jail on theft charges, leaving Rose with the girls. Now, she resented them, especially Charmaine, because she talked back. In 1971, she killed Charmaine, and when Fred got out of jail, he buried her under the kitchen floor. At this point, they were living at 25 Midland Road. I don't know why they kept ending up at 25 house addresses, but there you go. Uh, Fred and Rose got married in 1972. I'm sure their bond was closer than ever because they were also involved in murder together at this point. Rose became a prostitute in the 70s. And by some accounts, she not only continued to have sex with her own dad, she also slept with Fred's dad. In 1972, they moved to 25 Cromwell Street and had another daughter named May. They transformed this house not only into a space for their family, but also to lodgers and a place of business for Rose. In my previous episode, I discussed serial killers who killed their tenants and the West didn't qualify. Instead of killing their tenants, they tended to have sex with them, which is, you know, definitely a better situation. The West also made it clear at the local children's homes, that they were a hospitable couple who would always welcome border-upset teenagers. This ensured a steady flow of lodgers or possible victims. So to paint a better picture for you, Fred was totally into Rose being a prostitute. He was so supportive, he not only encouraged her to bring her John's home, he also rigged the room with mics and put speakers in the living room so he could listen to her have sex while he watched TV with the kids. He also had a peephole in case he wanted to check out the action and get some free live amateur porn. Needless to say, he was super into it. Rose was so relaxed about her sexuality that one of May's former bro- boyfriends said on his first visit to the house, Rose walked out of her bedroom naked. And I quote, Everything was sagging and dangling everywhere. It was a pretty horrible sight. But apparently that didn't deter men from calling because she had a lot of male visitors. From what some of her clients said, she was amazing in the bedroom. Sometimes she didn't even charge them. She was super into it. One of their lovers, Mary Halliday, divulged this information. She was taken across the hallway and into a room with a huge four-poster bed. Rose took a suitcase of magazines out of a wardrobe. It was full of pictures of black latex suits with holes for the nose and mouth. If you're into American Horror Story, it's basically like the suit in that one. Also, in the suitcase were suits exactly like the pictures. Their worn appearance made it clear they had been used. Mary said, Rose and Fred described all the items in detail. They were very turned on by talking about them. We were all naked and I felt embarrassed. End quote. The West wanted to know if Mary would be willing to wear one of the suits to dish out punishment. Mary said, The bedroom cupboard, cupboard was filled with sex toys, and I realized I was totally out of my depth. Unquote. Mary was not super into it. I do want to throw in here real fast that I'm not saying that because they were into these latex suits and stuff like that, that that is inherently 
a serial killer thing and it's a terrible thing. This just shows an aspect of their sexuality, that they were obviously into these things and that not that at this point it's bad, but that they did have a room dedicated to it. It just kind of gives you a better picture of uh, the situation. So in addition to what they called their secret room, they also had what Fred called his torture chamber. So this is this is where it gets into the serial killer stuff. They had turned their cellar into a soundproof torture chamber, which they were quite fond of. Fred enlarged and deepened the cellar so an adult could stand in it with their arms stretched towards the ceiling. They had their secret room and their cellar torture chamber, but they did not limit activity to just those rooms. In 1972, they abducted and abused Carolyn Rain, also known as Carolyn Owens or Carolyn Roberts. She had actually lived with them for a while as their nanny, but she had left because of their creepy sexual advances. So after she had moved out, they offered her a ride home one day when they saw her waiting for a bus. She accepted because she didn't really have any reason not to. And after a bit, Rose started coming on to her. Carolyn refused her advances, so Fred pulled over and punched her until she lost consciousness. They used her scarf to tie her hands behind her back and covered her mouth with tape. Rose sat on her and fondled her. Dragging her into the house, Fred was laughing and feeling under her clothes. They didn't take her to the cellar, though. They took her to a first-floor bedroom. They stripped her except for her shoes, tied her hands behind her back, and gagged her. They took turns probing her with their fingers. Then Rose held her legs apart while Fred lashed her genitals with the buckle end of his belt. Then Rose performed cunnilingus on her while Fred took Rose from behind. Then Carolyn was untied and ungagged, and Rose went to the bathroom. While she was gone, Fred raped Carolyn and was worried that she would tell Rose. She noticed he had tears in his eyes. She did try to get away, but they put a pillow over her face and threatened to keep her in their cellar where their friends would have their way with her, and then they'd bury her. He raped her again when Rose was out of the room. Again, he cried. He begged for her to come back to work for him. She agreed, and they finally let her go home. Her mother noticed her condition, and they went to the police. But, since Carolyn didn't show up in court, the Wests were able to convince the judge that it wasn't rape, so they got off with a slap on the wrist. Fred and Rose had a son named Stephen in 1973. Just moving on with life like normal. That same year, when their daughter Anne-Marie was eight, they led her to the basement, tied her hands with tape, and then tied her hands with strips of sheet to an iron object above her. They put a bowl of water between her legs on the floor, gagged her, and began to use a vibrator on her. They left for a bit, presumably to have sex. Then they came back and continued on her. Fred insisted that she was lucky that her father cared enough to show her how to please a man. He also declared it was his right as her father to do with her whatever he wanted. In 1973, they raped, tortured, murdered, dismembered, and buried 19-year-old Linda Gao. Some accounts say she was buried in the cellar, some say the garage, and some say the bathroom. Some just say her remains were found on the property. So we'll just go with that. She had once been their nanny. They tortured and raped her in the cellar. Also in 1973, Carol Ann Cooper was murdered. The 15-year-old was tortured for a week murdered, dismembered, and buried in the cellar. 
Their last murder in 1973 was of 21-year-old Lucy Partington. She was raped and tortured for a week, murdered, dismembered, and buried in the cellar. In 1974, they killed 21-year-old Therese Siegenthaler and 15-year-old Shirley Hubbard. Hubbard's remains were found covered in tape with only a three-inch rubber tube to allow her to breathe. In 1975, they killed 18-year-old Juanita Mott. She had actually stayed at Cromwell Street before, but she had moved out and was coming back to visit. Her body was found trussed in an elaborate bondage costume. She was trussed up with lengths of plastic-covered rope with loops tied around her arms and thighs, both wrists, both ankles, and her skull horizontally and vertically, backwards and forwards across her body until she could only wriggle like a trapped animal. Her head was wrapped in tape with a plastic tube inserted in her nose to breathe. She had been gagged with a ligature made from two long, white nylon socks. When 1977 came around, Rose gave birth to a girl named Tara, the daughter of one of her clients. Also that year, an anonymous girl called Carol in the book The Corpse Garden by Colin Wilson was abused. She was friends with the Wests and would often visit them over the years. They were a little creepy with their sex talk, but they seemed harmless. On one visit, Rose told her there were two girls of her own age in another room. She was taken into a bedroom with a cat of nine tails on the wall and pictures of humans having sex with animals. She said, As I walked in, I was stunned to see two girls naked in the room. One sat on the floor, the other was on the bed. Fred was in there as well, just wearing shorts, end quote. The younger girl looked about 14 years old. The other girl looked about 16 and had black short hair. Rose put her arm around Carol and said soothingly, It's all right to feel and touch and enjoy affection. Then she unzipped the girl's dress at the back and went on to strip her naked, explaining that they were all girls together. I don't even know what the hell that's supposed to mean. Like, that's just creepy. After that, Rose began to do a striptease for Fred's benefit, removing her blouse and skirt seductively. Carol could see that Fred was aroused. She said she was terrified, yet she also felt as if she had paid to go on a fairground ride and could not get off until it stopped. Fred produced packing tape and bound the wrists of the blonde girl across her chest, after which she was turned on to her front. Then Fred pulled her legs apart so it almost split her and taped them down. Fred and Rose began to kiss. Then Rose produced a vibrator and penetrated the girl's anus so that she groaned in pain. Rose now removed Fred's underpants, and he spread the girl's buttocks and kissed her anus. As Carol looked away, she heard Fred give a groan of pleasure as he thrust into the girl. Carol wasn't sure if he was having vaginal or anal intercourse. The girl was obviously in pain, and Carol said that her face wore a help-me look. The other girl seemed to be taking it in stride. Fred now left the room to go to the toilet, and Rose untaped the girl on the bed, who began sucking her hair like a child, as if for comfort. Now Rose approached Carol and began running her hands over her body and pubic hair, kissing her neck and fondling her breasts. She was whispering words like, enjoy. Carol remained frozen, and Rose commented, I like stiff ones. Carol was made to sit on the edge of the bed, and Rose taped her wrists, then laid her down on her front. Meanwhile, Fred had returned and was masturbating. As Carol buried her face in the brushed nylon sheets, she felt her ankles being taped apart. 
Then Rose ran the vibrator down Carol's back and around her vagina, asking, Is that nice, Fred? Carol felt female fingers with long nails enter her vagina, while the other hand caressed her breasts and twisted a nipple. Rose was continuing to murmur, Enjoy. Rose felt inside her for a long time, as if conducting a medical examination. Then Carol felt the neck of a bottle or a candle she had seen earlier and experienced great pain. Okay, I admit, I have a lot of problem with this next sentence. I felt my anus was being split. I heard a popping sound. Need a second. That one's, that one's a lot. It's a lot right there. Okay, let's all breathe. All right. Okay. We're almost done with section. Power through it. One second. After the object was removed, Fred climbed onto her and entered her vagina. At the same time, Rose caressed Fred's penis. As he began to gasp that he was coming, Rose told him to pull it out and climax on her back. Fred withdrew, and Carol felt the sticky droplets on the small of her back. Rose rubbed them in. Then Rose snipped the tape with tiny scissors, cutting Carol's thumb, and Carol was allowed to get up. Carol got away and didn't report them out of humiliation. The next year, 1978, Rose had a child by Fred named Louise. They just keep on coming. Also that year, an 18-year-old prostitute and lodger named Shirley Robinson became pregnant with Fred's kid. As he did before with Anna McFall, he murdered her. She was buried in the back garden along with their unborn child. At that time, the cellar was full, so they turned it into a kid's room. You know, as you would do. The torture chamber became a place where their kids played and slept. In 1979, his daughter Anne-Marie was impregnated by Fred, but she had an ectopic pregnancy and lost the baby. Thank God she left home and the abuse she faced there. Thank God she got away. Uh, This is rough. Okay. 17-year-old Allison Chambers was raped, tortured, murdered, and buried in the back garden. Her face, her body was found with a purple belt under her chin and around her head to prevent screaming. Rose had another son by Fred named Barry in 1980. In 1982, she had a client's child named Rosemary Jr. And in 1983, she had yet another client's baby and named her Luciana. The murder seemed to have stopped unless they were buried elsewhere, as Fred had claimed to his son, but no substantial evidence has been found. There was, however, one more murder, and it would come in 1987. In 1987, Heather admitted to a friend that she was being abused by her dad, but it turns out her friend's dad frequented the West House and told Fred and Rose about Heather's accusations. She was killed and buried under the patio. In 1988... They had a lover named Mary Halliday. This is what she had to say. He became more and more violent and demanding. He enjoyed tying me up and putting a pillow over my face. He whipped me and tried to abuse me with huge sex objects. On one occasion, West put a pillow over her face and cut her stomach with a knife. She was also worried about their torture chamber, a room with whips, chains, and hooks. He also showed her home videos of young girls being whipped, tortured, and humiliated. But Rose also enjoyed and joined in the games of sadism. Mary Halliday tells how Rose placed a pillow over her head and whispered, What does it feel like not being able to see? 
and Mary adds significant sentence, they got their thing from seeing other people frightened. She does confirm that Rose joined in with Fred's strange assaults with sexual objects and whips. Another willing sex partner said she allowed herself to be hung upside down over a hole Fred had made in the cellar floor. As for the specific treatment of the murder victims, while in jail after his arrest, Fred told his son Stephen, I only made love to them when I thought they were dead. Stephen said Fred claimed, They had their nails pulled out and their fingers cut off while they were hanging up and cigarettes stubbed out on them. He didn't say why they were tortured, but they were. He sexually assaulted them in the house, then he tied them up and tortured them, then he killed them and did whatever he did to them. Stephen believes the bodies were taken elsewhere to be dismembered, and the lack of bloodstains at Cromwell Street seems to support that view. Imagine you're wondering how they finally were caught. In 1992, they raped a girl and she went to the cops. One source said when the cops visited, they found a video of Fred and Rose abusing kids. And of course, once they started to dig, they found the bodies. Fred admitted to the bodies in the cellar in the bathroom. He said he murdered them, but he denied raping them. He claimed it was always consensual. He didn't know all the names of his victims either. He called one girl Scarhand because of the burn on her hand. He referred to another girl as Tulip because he thought she was Dutch. He called one Shirley's mate because she had hung out with Shirley. Fred took all of the blame for the murders. It seems as though they had an agreement that he would say he did it so Rose could go free. Some extra details on the bodies included one had a piece of cloth wrapped around its skull and there was a plastic clothesline in the grave. One corpse was gagged with a bra, tights, and two pairs of nylon socks, and it appears death came from being bludgeoned with a hammer. One body had a seven-foot rope with noose, probably to suspend her from a beam. Fred also had a penchant for taking their fingers and toes. This started way back when he killed Anna McFall. Sometimes he took other parts, like kneecaps, ribs, ankles, part of the vertebrae, and the breastbone. No one knows what he did with them. One author says he buried them near the bus stop where he met Rose, but that's never been substantiated. It seems as though they were trophies that Fred didn't want to share with anyone. One speculation as to why he chose to dismember the corpses and keep some of the parts stemmed from working in a slaughterhouse for a while. At that point, he became obsessed with blood, corpses, and dismemberment. But we'll never know for sure. Because Fred hanged himself in his cell in 1995 and died with his many secrets. His brother John also hanged himself in jail. He was awaiting the verdict on his trial for raping his niece Anne-Marie. Rose is still alive and in prison on 10 counts of murder. 25 Cromwell Street, dubbed the House of Horrors and the Gloucestershire House of Horrors, was demolished. When it comes to their motivation, I'd say it's a combination of convenience and lack of control, especially the early ones. Charmaine was an annoyance, so Rose killed her, probably during a fit of rage she was prone to have. Uh, for Fred, Rena and, and Anne McFall became threats, so he got rid of them. Then when Heather started to tell their secrets, she was moved out of the way as well. As far as the victims of Cromwell Street, I think some of the murder was probably to cover their asses. After getting charged for the assault of Carolyn Owens in 1972, they most likely figured it was safer to kill, though they did let the anonymous girl go in 19 1977. 
it's possible they felt safer because the girl had emotional problems being from an abusive home and was in and out of facilities for juvenile delinquents. It's also possible that some of the murders could have happened from losing control during, during torture, though Fred made a comment to his son that all of the girls deserved to die. At any rate, they obviously didn't care if someone died because the girls kept dying. The main reference books for the West portion of the episode was The Corpse Garden by Colin Wilson. For a more complete list, you can go to murderlabmedia.com. You should go to murderlabmedia.com anyway. Check it all out. I've got some stuff out there. References. I've got some blog things. Some thoughts. There's, I don't know, there's links. There's stuff. Go check it out. Thank you for joining Murder Lab. I will be coming out with another episode here soon. So stay tuned. Make sure to check me out on Facebook at Murder Lab. And I'm also on Instagram as Murder Lab. So check it all out. I'm doing some stuff. 